and welcome to the pre-Easter edition of Tuesday Home Time. And there's no holiday for us as we broadcast out here 24 hours a day, every day of the year. But today, what is staying up to with its second betrayal of Western Sahara? Kamal Fidel, the Australian New Zealand representative of the Polisario Front, will be explaining Oxfam report on Yemen, the ignored war while Europe takes centre stage, speaking with activist Cathy Kelly. The monthly gene ethics report with Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. Part one of the recent history of Colombia in South America with PhD student and activist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. And let's begin as usual with Mr Kevin Healy and he's had another week. A week, Jane, listener, when election time, not the time to be reading, listening to or watching the news, set pieces of nothings to add to the wall-to-wall coverage identical every day of train killing, so we can safely anticipate the news and ignore it. Although, did hear the Minister for Being Offensive and Train Killing Constable Peter Duffer urge us to return the government based on his performance these past three years. Like, you know, like... So maybe Pete wants them to lose, but his shadow minister for being offensive and train-killing Brendan O'Conkham stuck it up and over the government's claims the socialists are weak on defence, spend less than the coalition on the merchants of death. The important figure Brendan put them in their place is the percentage of government outlays, 7.15% under the socialists, 5.92% under the capitalists, and even more encouraging, Brendan and the socialists would spend lots more because the socialists believe in stability and peace. And the road to stability and peace is paved with the merchandise of the merchants of death. Well, roads and waterways and airways, the latter two, of course, not paved, pointing out it was the socialists who ensured a U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world trained killer marines were stationed in Darwin to protect us from the whoever's north of Darwin and the, the caring business class Hayseed and Sheepshit lot had allowed an evil, evil Chinese company to operate the port of Darwin. Good, good U.S. of evil, evil China. Not that Brendan told us who north of Darwin he had in mind, leaving us scratching our heads, but thankful the socialists intend to spend trillions making us safe from whoever he does have in mind. Maybe it's Timor-Leste, because we were forced to bug Timor-Leste's cabinet room to defend the rights to profit of one of the world's biggest polluters, which wants to make a killing in all meanings of the word in the Timor Sea, the, the way that government should work with the caring business class, and we know a solicitor is being charged with something or other, and we can't know about it, and he can't know about it either, for the heinous crime of revealing we had bugged apparently evil Timor-Leste's cabinet meetings, because on the grounds of national security, the matter must be dealt with in secret. Let's hope Timor-Leste doesn't bug the courtroom. That that would be a crime. And, and on such matters, Trubler was he is very, very angry with evil China for holding a trial behind closed doors on the grounds of national security. So maybe Timor-Leste is the threat to our security Brendan is talking about. And, and now they've closed hotel prison just before the election. What do you know? Releasing all these no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people we've been told pays a, pose a major threat to our way of life 
dangerous because they are seeking refuge from persecution for the past decade from Tuvaluasi government persecution. Being offensive and trained killing is even more critical to protect us from this new threat. Remember a couple of weeks ago we commented on the grossly unjust announcement by the tax office that it would target family trusts, the ludicrous implication being that family trusts are used by the filthy rich to avoid tax. Well, the Socialist Party opened up the options it will consider should it land its bums on the government plush seats when its economic guru Jim Chalmers, the big end of town, announced it would abandon its policy to tax family trusts altogether. We will do the right thing by people, he boasted, by not doing anything about the people who don't pay tax, a small reward for the wonderful contribution the rich make to society. In fact, Jim promised the socialists would not increase any taxes, a great start ruling out their chances of doing much about anything other than supporting lots of corporate welfare, which will have to be paid by decreasing the poorest of the poor welfare and non-essential services like health, education, public transport, public housing. And of course, it must meet all that extra spending on trained killing and the merchants of death promised by Brendan. But then the poor won't mind going with Without knowing they are being kept safe, much more critical than wasting money putting a bit of food on the table, for instance, or a roof over their heads or filling that prescription, presuming they have a bulk filling, bulk billing GP. The, the money that would feed us is much better spent on the merchants of death they will concede from their comfortable little gutters. With his usual honesty and sticking to the facts, Big Supremo scuttled them more or less than a.k.a. Scummo, said Jim's commitment not to increase taxes showed the Socialist Party will let it rip on taxes. So, given we can always rely on Scummo's word, we can but imagine how much worse things would be if he had said he would raise taxes. Worse if he said he would increase taxes on the filthy rich although any taxes in their case would be an increase on zero. Worse, worse if he said he would use them for those non-essentials we mentioned, like housing, transport, health, education, a welfare system aimed at bringing some fairness into the equation. Scummo, speaking of let it rip, also got stuck into the pejorative Dan State Government for not letting it rip nearly enough. Obviously, far too few coronavirus cases and hospitalizations and deaths. Get rid of masks, distancing, isolation, those impediments to business doing its thing the way a proper, responsible let it rip should work. The pejorative Dan lot countering with a pathetic, we're following the health advice. What would health experts know about a bitter pandemic compared to wise economists, experts on the greatest little economic order of them all, leading to a brilliant piece of oppositional philosophy from the caring business class state shadow minister for letting it rip? Uh, yes, we have to listen to health experts, but don't outsource decisions to health experts. In other words, get the expert health advice and then totally ignore it. A perfect scenario for let it rip. Speaking of money, I'm feeling bitter, 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 and so hard done by. Saturday, I backed the winner, watched the race, and danced around wildly when the horse ran seventh. I won, I won, I yelled with excitement. And then the bloody TAB refused to pay me. Of course I won. Seventh you win, I insisted. Just ask our big supremo. Because we know in the seat of Cooked, 
also named because of its caring business class party pre-selection processes. All those years ago, Scummo decided to throw his hat in the ring to see what he could stuff up after stuffing up the New Zealand Tourism Authority, after which he stuffed up the True Blue Aussie Tourism Authority, qualifying him to run the caring business class party, which couldn't be more stuffed up anyway, and proving his overwhelming popularity in a field of seven, Scummo was the first candidate eliminated, seventh of seven, a bloke of Lebanese background finally winning. Uh, so he was the, uh, he was the candidate. Uh, no, no. So who? Well, obviously, Scummo. A victory for seventh heaven over terrorism, because after all, Lebanese background. <laughs> who knows? Thank goodness Scummo sorted that out. Better safe than sorry. Although, what happened to second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, and how must they have felt? Then again, he stood next to his predecessor the day before his predecessor's demise, swearing close, close friendship, and with his arm around Malcolm Tun of Bull, presumably as it turned out so Malcolm couldn't see the knife. And this week, he supported the democratic principles he espouses by removing the right of caring business class party members to choose the candidates of their choice just like his own pre-selection, really, in the interests of party democracy, and also because they were likely not to choose the candidates of his choice. And more importantly, he stressed, because he believes in supporting strong women, which he might have got away with if he hadn't then chosen pollution minister Susan Lees and Driggs. Susan celebrated her survival and exhibited her strength by giving final approval to Woodside with Profit's latest contribution to saving the planet, the Scar Mother Earth Borough Natural Gas Project in Western Trublawazi, the biggest fossil project for at least a decade, which Woodside with Supremo Migo Neil before Capital said would bring climate benefits. She really said that. In the week, the intergovernmental panel said we must stop extracting fossils altogether, showing Susan and Meg are both strong women, strong enough to resist such economy-wrecking nonsense like the planet and its creatures should just maybe be considered in these matters. When Meg pointed out the approval would deliver long-term benefits for shareholders, and the Troublawazi Capitalist Review pointed out Susan and the WA Socialist Government's approval was applauded by investors. So it must be a positive. Uh, when you say long-term, Meg, do you mean as long as the planet survives your shareholders and investors' windfall? Under the law, our responsibility is to those shareholders, and the government's responsibility to those it represents is to uphold that law which Susan Lees and Dregs, a strong, strong woman, has recognised. Uh, but as Pollution Minister, doesn't she also have some responsibility for the planet? And where do you think this natural gas is? It's on the planet, you raving idiot! Well, that put me in my place. And anyway, Meg says the long-term fossil will be good for the climate because it will help its Asian customers decarbonise. Although, in fairness, carbon fossils decarbonising make a bit of an explanation wouldn't have gone astray, and, and obviously there must be no sun or wind in its Asian markets. Susan told us she was upset people had been stacking branches in her electorate, uh, just like the way the government has been stacking courts and tribunals and government authorities generally on the eve of calling the election, Susan. That is a slur. We are talking about highly competent apparatchiks. 
that is experts. The alternative is not worth thinking about. Finally, like the not worth thinking about that will spew from the candidates' mouths for the next few weeks. Good afternoon. And Mr. Kevin Healy, and you can hear more from Kevin at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning with City Limits. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Are you ready to vote? The federal election is on soon. If you've recently turned 18 or have never enrolled before, you have to enroll to vote before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. If you've changed your name or address since the last time you voted, you have to change your details. To enrol, you need proof of ID, like a driver's licence or passport, or someone who is already on the electoral roll who can confirm who you are. Enrol or change your details on the internet at aec.gov.au or pick up an enrolment form at any Australian Electoral Commission AEC office and return it to the AEC before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. The Spanish Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, travelled to Morocco earlier this month and met the Moroccan King, Mohammed VI, seeking to end diplomatic tensions. Centred on Morocco's refusal to accept a referendum on the future of Western Sahara, which it has been partially occupying since 1975. One commentator put it this way, With the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was never a better moment for Spain to rid itself of its most nagging problem, the decolonisation of Western Sahara, stalled for 47 years because of the Moroccan monarchy's refusal to accept a referendum. This meeting on the 7th of April was seen as a mending of diplomatic tensions which were damaged when Morocco was angered by Spain allowing the leader of the pro-independence movement, the Polisario for Western Sahara, to receive medical treatment. To understand the situation as it stands today, I spoke with Kamal Fidel, Australian-New Zealand representative of the Polisario Front, that independent movement for Western Sahara. Kamal first set the scene in 1975, or should we go back to an earlier time? In 1963, uh, Western Sahara was included in the list of non-self-governing territories by the United Nations, which are entitled uh, to uh, a process of decolonization, and uh, the people of the territory are entitled to to their inalienable right of self-determination. 
So since Sahara was a Spanish colony, and the people there were beginning to demand the decolonization of their homeland, their territory, Western Sahara. And uh, in 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 this in 1970, there were uh, an uprising in the Western Sahara to uh, put pressure on on Spain to start the process of decolonization. Uh, that uh, uprising was crushed by the Spanish, and the leaders were uh, arrested, uh, and uh, the main leader Brahim Bassiri disappeared. Then, in in 1973, when peaceful means failed. The Saharawis, the indigenous population of Western Sahara, set up a, a liberation movement uh, called the Polisario, and it adopted armed struggle uh, and carried out its first operation on the 20th of May 1973 against Spain. So there was pressure from inside the territory as well as pressure from the international community on Spain to start a process of decolonization. However, the Spanish did not do the right thing, did not follow the procedure of the United Nations uh, in terms of the colonization, did not respond to the uh, aspirations or the demands of the population, and they started negotiating with the two neighboring countries, Morocco and Mauritania, uh, in order to divide the territory between them so that Spain can maintain economic interests, particularly in the fishing and the phosphates. Uh, so on the 14th of November 1975, the so-called Madrid Agreement was signed uh, in Madrid between Morocco, Spain, and Mauritania. Uh, Morocco and Mauritania each got a half of the territory, and Spain maintained its uh, economic interests. Uh, without, this was done without, you know, uh, the consent of the population and was also done against a very important decision by the International Court of Justice that uh, confirmed that neither Morocco nor Mauritania had any uh, sovereign title over the territory and that the people were entitled to the right to self-determination. So Morocco moved in uh, and Mauritania also moved in the territory and the Saharawis had to flee, most of them had to flee their own territory and seek refuge in Algeria and the Polisario carried out uh, it's um, continued its armed struggle against both Morocco and Mauritania. Mauritania gave up its, uh, you know, aspirations its, uh, in, in the territory and withdrew from the part it occupied. Morocco moved in and occupied the other part. So, yes, Spain in 1975 betrayed the Sahrawis, and we are still, uh, you know, living the consequences of that betrayal uh, until now. Spain is still considered by the United Nations as the administering, the de jure uh, administering power. And because the United Nations never accepted that Madrid agreement. And um, so it has a particular responsibility towards Sahrawi people. Yeah. What did the UN decolonization body say about all this? Well, they they never, uh, you know, uh, accepted it. Uh, the, with the United Nations called on Morocco and Mauritania to withdraw. The, the issue continued on the United Nations agenda as a decolonization issue every year. That's the United Nations Fourth Committee, which is responsible for the decolonization, uh, discusses the issue. 
the special committee uh, on decolonization committee of 24 also is still considering the issue as a decolonization issue. So this was an illegal agreement uh, that was not accepted by the United Nations or the Sahrawi people. What's been the position of Spain in the preceding years, like up to now when it's said that they've abandoned Western Sahara? What role has Spain played over those years? Well, Spain has always uh, at least maintained a, a neutral position. All the governments in Spain have considered, uh, you know, the, that they will support the uh, efforts of the United Nations to find a solution to the issue. Spain is uh, one of the members of the so-called group of in the, in the United Nations called Friends of Western Sahara. That's the official position. The position of political parties, the parliament, the public is very supportive of the Sahrawi people's aspirations uh, and the cause to um, have an independent Western Sahara. There is a tremendous support in Spain for the Sahrawis because they feel that Spain uh, betrayed the people uh, and abandoned them and uh, they feel, you know, a sense of shame and guilt towards the Sahrawi people. Uh, so there is a lot of solidarity and support within Spain for the, for, for the Sahrawi people. Can you explain just what Spain has proposed at this time? Well, um, Last month, uh, we were surprised to hear that uh, everyone learned from from the Moroccans that they received a letter from uh, the Prime Minister of Spain, Pedro Sanchez, that he sent a letter to the King of Morocco considering that uh, the Moroccan proposal of autonomy for Western Sahara uh, is a, he, I think he called it the most serious, realistic and credible approach to resolving the issue. This is a shift, a significant shift from former Spanish position. <clears throat> Apparently this is a unilateral decision by the Prime Minister and his foreign minister also. He did not inform all the members of his current government, because it's a coalition government, particularly the members of a party called Podemos. He also did not inform the opposition or the parliament. Uh, he, did not, he did not inform uh, the uh, people of Sahrawi representatives. And it was a kind of a secret letter sent to, the, to Morocco to appease them. Uh, we know that Spain has a difficult uh, issues with Morocco because Morocco uses uh, pressure and uh, to on Spain there are some issues that Morocco uses like illegal immigration the, the issue of Ceuta and Melilla uh, the issue of uh, illegal immigration uh, drugs maritime borders between Spain and Morocco so it's a kind of blackmail and it Apparently, the current government, or the, at least the Prime Minister of Spain, succumbed. You know, he gave in to this pressure. And what this means, that 
the government, the current government in Spain, considers, uh, you know, Western Sahara to be part of Morocco, to be given autonomy. Uh, this would legitimize Morocco's occupation. This is very serious. So there was a, an upheaval within Spain, particularly in within parliament and the political parties, and even members of the government came out to say, uh, this is illegal, This is we would not accept this, we, the prime minister should not have done this. And there was also a, a motion, a resolution in parliament adopted by the overwhelming majority asking the prime minister to uh, rectify this uh, error and, uh, you know, go back to the previous Spanish position of neutrality. What does the Prime Minister say to justify what he's done? I imagine he's had to speak in Parliament. Yes, I mean, he's, he's giving uh, different uh, signals. He says, oh, well, this does not change our position. We still, you know, support United Nations efforts. And he say this is in the interest of Spain. It's 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 a move, you know, uh, real politic uh, that uh, we we will get a lot from Morocco. We will, uh, you know, have a peaceful relationship with Morocco. We will not have Morocco will control illegal immigration and would not ask, you know, for the certain Malia to be given back to them, and he said, we, we, this will resolve a lot. So it was kind of selling Western Sahara, you know, in return for Morocco to behave towards Spain. But there are no guarantees. Even he did not get anything in concrete. He did not get any assurances, even for, you know, selling out Western Sahara. There, are, there is nothing... Written and Morocco could always use these pressures uh, on Spain in the future. So I think he's, he finds himself really in a difficult position to justify what he did in, you know, morally, uh, ethically, legally, uh, and this, uh, and, and, and even uh, in terms of uh, what he would get back from Morocco. No, no, he also damaged the relationship with, with Algeria, which is very important for Spain. Algeria is a very supportive for Western Sahara. It's a, it's a, it's a main ally, and uh, it was also not informed of, of this move. Uh, and we know that Spain depends on, on gas from Algeria, uh, and uh, Algeria is a very important uh, country in North Africa. Algeria withdrew its ambassador from Spain following this announcement, and um, the relationship is not good at the moment. Especially when you realise that um, the camps, the Western Saharan refugee camps, are a very important part of the resistance to Morocco, and they are in Algeria. Correct. And, uh, and, and Algeria finds that uh, this is not uh, a legitimate move. Uh, and Spain, as a former colonial power, has a particular responsibility towards the Sahrawi people. 
uh, and it should not be siding with Morocco, which is the aggressor, the illegal occupier, uh, and who violated United Nations resolutions and the International Court of Justice opinion, uh, and abuses human rights in the territory. Uh, so uh, we should not, uh, Morocco should not be rewarded for these terrible actions it has done. So it's a kind of a, an international prior uh, that uh, is continues to be uh, appeased and uh, uh, rewarded for its uh, aggression. Just to add to what you have said, it's been described as shameful and deplorable. It's illegal, immoral and involved in a flagrant violation of international legality. Why do you believe Spain has done it at this time? Well, it's it's very strange um, move. It's very surprising. It doesn't make any sense apart from short-come gains for the Prime Minister and his current government. But in the long term, uh, Spain is going to suffer from this because, you know, it damages the relationship with the people of Western Sahara, a former Spanish colony. It also damages the relationship with the friends of Western Sahara in Africa and in South America and elsewhere. And it, Morocco would go back to uh, its bad behavior. It has proven to do so in the past. It never... Uh, respects uh, any kind of agreements uh, signed or it, uh, it has we have uh, seen that with Morocco's behavior with the United Nations in Western Sahara when it signed you know the settlement plan uh, and it promised to organize the referendum to allow the referendum to be organized in Western Sahara and uh, it reneged on all these agreements I think the long-term interests of Spain strategic interest would be for Western Sahara as a former colony to be independent, uh, not to reward Morocco or, or make it a strong, powerful country that is able to put pressure on Spain in the future uh, and to have a friend in Western Sahara. Spain needs a friend in, in Northwest Africa. There are lots of things that Spain could gain from an independent Western Sahara in terms of economic interests, security interests. The Canary Islands are very close to Western Sahara, and Morocco is still demanding, uh, you know, maritime territory in, uh, close to, to, to the Canary Islands. It has never accepted the borders there. So, yeah, Spain has a lot to gain from an independent Western Sahara. Western Sahara, it has a lot to lose uh, doing this uh, illegal deal with, uh, with Morocco. And we can't go past the strong ties between the Spanish people themselves and the people of Western Sahara. Absolutely. <clears throat> and we have seen that clearly in the last uh, few weeks uh, since this announcement uh, was made. Many, um, almost all political parties, in, even including those in, in government, including members in, of, of parliament and political uh, leaders in the socialist party of, of uh, the prime minister, uh, have come out condemning this move and supporting the Sahrawi people. 
the parliament, the media, uh, the, the you know uh, academics, ordinary people, uh, all have criticised this move and have been very supportive. So there is a tremendous support in in Spain uh, from left and right for the people of Western Sahara, and this is uh, reassuring uh, and gives us hope that this this decision is not going to last and that the next government in Spain would rectify this terrible error uh, and, uh, you know, take uh, the uh, unappropriate decision towards Western Sahara. Um, yes, so uh, we, we have a lot of support in Spain. What I meant also was the, the people-to-people contact. Uh, absolutely, and that's been, you know, thanks to the, uh, for example, families who adopt Sahrawi children in Spain for a short period of time, particularly during summer. We call them uh, vacations in peace, uh, and where thousands of Sahrawi kids go to Spain to spend the summer period uh, within with families. Uh, and this has cre- has been going on for many years and has uh, cemented, you know, human links uh, between uh, families, between people to people. And um, we have uh, also thousands of Sahrawis living in Spain. So, uh, yeah, there is uh, a lot of friendship and cooperation and between the two peoples. Not so much between, you know, the government of Spain, which have always uh, let us down, uh, because this is the second time in, in history that we have been betrayed, and it's it's very painful to be to feel this uh, betrayal. Well, most importantly, surely, Kamal, is the the feelings and the outrage expressed by the people in the occupied territories, the, the free part of Western Sahara and, and the areas in Algeria, in the refugee camps? Yeah, the, the, the Sahrawis, um, you know, were surprised, were shocked uh, by this decision uh, and uh, they, uh, they, they did not expect this from, you know, uh, a country that has uh, a huge debt to uh, for, for for the people of Western Sahara, and uh, which is supposed to be a democracy, and follow you know legality and be supportive uh, of international legality. So yes, it, it is something that has been painful, has been terrible. But how we will not forget it, uh, and. Um, this is why a few days ago we have uh, announced officially, a couple of days ago, that uh, Polisario is suspending its contact with the current government of Spain uh, until it rectifies uh, this uh, terrible decision. How confident are you that this can be changed? Well, well from all the indications within the political system in Spain and political parties in Parliament, uh, the overwhelming majority of people there are against it. But let me say also that 
terrible as it is, this decision, it doesn't mean much in reality uh, because the, the issue will continue to be considered by the United Nations as a decolonization issue. Neither Spain nor the United States or any other country can give sovereignty to Western Sahara to Morocco. The sovereignty remains in the hands of the Sahrawi people. Uh, and it will not, this issue is not going to be resolved unless the people of Western Sahara are given uh, a free and fair choice to exercise the right of self-determination. So, it is, uh, yes, a moral boost and uh, for the Moroccan regime, but in reality, it's not going to change the situation on the ground or the status of the Sahara as a, a decolonization issue within the United Nations. Um, yeah. And when are we likely to visit that again, the decolonization process? Well, uh, at the end of this month, the Security Council will be uh, discussing the Western Sahara issue uh, again. Uh, and in October this year, the General Assembly will be de- dealing with Western Sahara as a decolonization issue, as usual. You don't get much joy from the Security Council, though, do you? Not really. <laughs> but at the issue will remain on the agenda of the Security Council uh, until the issue is resolved. So, yeah, we we have it's the only Security Council we have at the moment, unfortunately. Although it's not very effective, and its decisions are not usually very fair because of the domination of the superpowers of the Council, like the United States, France, you know, Britain. China and Russia, you know, but it's the only institution we have at the moment. Thank you, Kamal, and best wishes. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Kamal Fidel is the Australian and Museum representative of the Polisario Front for Western Sahara. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Melbourne Jazz Jammers present the second Newport Jazz Festival. 60 plus bands, 7 venues and 3 days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians. 29th of April to 1st of May. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office in Market Street or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au The Friendly Festival. 
The Newport Jazz Festival is a 3CR supporter. in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Hello 3CR listeners, I'm Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia Pacific Currents and I'm appealing to you to subscribe to 3CR to keep radical voices on air. I've been a volunteer and broadcaster at 3CR for over 20 years and I can say categorically that radical voices like ours that bring you stories of extraordinary, incredible women from across the world leading grassroots struggles, well, those voices just aren't welcome in the mainstream media. You won't hear about the struggle against Samsung's human rights abuses against its workers in South Korea. You won't hear about the plight of the Myanmar resistance against the coup on any other station, at least not the way we tell it here at 3CR. So be a comrade and go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. While the war in Ukraine occupies the world's attention, the human cost of the war in Yemen is rising sharply as the conflict enters its eighth year. With the number of civilian deaths increasing sharply, hunger on the rise, and three-quarters of the population in urgent need of humanitarian support, Oxfam warned today. 17.4 million people are currently going hungry, with predictions that it will rise to 19 million by the end of this year which is 62% of the population, and an increase of more than 8 million since the conflict started. 4.8 million more people needed humanitarian assistance than did in 2015, the first year of the conflict. Since UN Human Rights Monitoring was withdrawn in October 2021, the civilian casualty rate has doubled now reaching well over 14,500 casualties. 24,000 airstrikes have damaged 40% of all housing in cities during the conflict. And during the last seven years, over 4 million people have been forced to flee from violence. I spoke with anti-war activist Cathy Kelly and pointed out that this war in Yemen what she has been focusing on all those years, and that the war in Ukraine will also have a devastating impact for many countries in the world, including Yemen, as it was the breadbasket of the world. Yeah, poor Yemen, my goodness. The, you know, the crop planted very likely in Ukraine, and uh, the Russians are under economic sanctions, and so the combination of those Two realities 
means that 38% of the grain that Yemen would normally get from the combination of Russia and Ukraine won't be forthcoming. So that has already sent prices skyrocketing. And uh, yeah, the estimates are that 33,000 Yemenis have already died as they enter now into the eighth year of war. And the atrocities that have been committed by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, by the United Arab Emirates and the coalition they run through air attacks, through blockade, through systematic destruction of infrastructure, those atrocities rival the atrocities of Vladimir Putin. They've gone on and been supported by the United States through our complicity in supplying spare parts for their aircraft, maintenance for their aircraft. These are aircraft that fire uh, murderous weapons at fisheries, at children's school buses, weddings, funerals, a detention center quite recently. The uh, 60 African migrants were killed when that detention center in Sada was hit. It just goes on and on. And now we find that the United States, because it has sanctioned Russia's oil, is cozying up to the despot Mohammed bin Zayaf in the United Arab Emirates, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, and saying, look, uh, you know, we'd like you to free up more of your oil. And they're saying, well, good, we'd like you to send us more weapons so that we can continue attacking people in Yemen. Now, there is a ceasefire. It's very precarious and tenuous. Each side unilaterally declared its own ceasefire, but the Yemenis said they wouldn't agree to new mediation and rounds of negotiation unless the Saudis first lift the blockade. That blockade is strangling the economy of Yemen and greatly affecting people's access to desperately needed resources. They're again at the risk of famine. This war between the people or between the government of Yemen and Saudi Arabia, what began it? I mean, is it a fact that Saudi Arabia wants to take over that country because it's at the sort of the base of the Saudi, of Saudi Arabia and it's got access to the sea. Is that what's behind all this? Jen, I think that is what it is. You'll often hear suggestions that it's a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but I believe that Saudi Arabia looked at Yemen and saw a potential land grab. And then we should also keep in mind that coastline, as you mentioned, the Bab al-Mandab is a waterway, a narrow waterway between uh, Djibouti at the Horn of Africa tip and the tip of the Saudi Peninsula. And, uh, you know, if any country decided to put a chokehold on the ship through that waterway every day, then it could greatly affect fuel and um, fuel deliveries. And so... Um, in that sense, Yemen is a resource-rich country, but also the fisheries all along the coastline could um, be very, very valuable. There are extraction possibilities for fossil fuels and minerals. And um, the Yemenis have long said, we are not going to subordinate ourselves to the development goals of Western nations. We don't want your loans. We don't want your 
interventions. And so they didn't make themselves real popular with some of the nations that have, you know, had a long practice of saying to other countries, you know, you buy our fertilizer, you take on our methods of cultivation and production, you take out loans to do that, and then we'll eventually, you know, wean you off of dependence, but you'll have to keep on paying these huge loans. And and Yemen didn't cooperate. Now, when Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi, who was the appointed president of Yemen, he was never elected, when he was ousted, then Saudi Arabia said, uh-uh-uh, you know, we're not going to put up with these upstarts who ousted our guy. And they invaded. And President Obama, wanting Saudi support at the time as they were negotiating the treaty with Iran uh, to get the Iranians to put a cap on their efforts to explore nuclear uh, developments, uh, he then said, okay, I'll do something for you. I'll look the other way while you start this invasion into Yemen. So that's part of the history of it. There, I, I don't think that President Obama necessarily wanted to go to war against Yemen, but he wanted to placate the Saudis. And, and initially, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia was saying to his country, well, it's not going to be very long. And then two years later, he went on, in 2017, he went on national TV and he said, uh, a long war is in our favor. Well, now, you know, it's been a very long war. Here we are at 2022. The Houthis have gotten uh, ways to produce drones, and that they may have gotten through technology uh, that was basically sent to them over the Internet. You know, you can, through 3D technology, construct uh, drones that they have aimed at uh, and used to blow up facilities, including oil production facilities, for Aramco in Saudi Arabia. And then the Saudis retaliate with vicious, vicious bombing uh, and, and an even uh, tighter noose in terms of the blockade. And the, the U.S., according to Bruce Rydell of the Brookings Institution, could just end the Saudi capacity to wage an air war by saying, that's it, no more spare parts, no more maintenance, no more weapons. But never has... President Joe Biden, who campaigned on the promise that he would stop supporting Saudi Arabia, never has he actually done so. He said, well, we won't send them offensive weapons, but anything the Saudis want, they can get by describing it as defensive. Mm. And meanwhile, in Afghanistan, the trauma for the mm, people continues. You know, there is a report. Yeah. It's just awful. 11,000, no, I'm sorry, 13,000 infants are estimated to have died as the economy collapses. The prices of fuel and bread have skyrocketed. Families can't meet their basic needs. The refugee population is growing. The suffering that's being imposed on the majority of that population who are women and children, 75% of whom are young people, is just terrible. Now, Surely no one wants to support the Taliban decision to again ban young girls from going to secondary schools or universities. But I think that to punish ordinary civilians who have no way to control the Taliban is so wrongheaded. And 
the Afghan National Bank reserves uh, were placed under the New York Reserve Bank because the United States said, look, your government is unstable and unpredictable. Um, this is what we do for developing countries. And uh, President Ashraf Ghani, formerly president of Afghanistan, went along with that. But now that money has been frozen. And so uh, relief aid goes in, and there have been some ways to allow the relief to move in spite of what amount to economic sanctions against Afghanistan. But a country can't survive on, you know, constant doses of relief aid. They have to get their economy up and running. And you're still working to bring vulnerable people out? Well, it's a very slow process, but yes, Jan, now eight young Afghans have been welcomed in southern Portugal in a city called Mercola, where they are um, integrating into the community and practicing permaculture skills, some of which they learned when they were in Afghanistan. And that's been a joyful process. Uh, four of our young friends are in Germany. We anticipate five will get to Canada. And I was very relieved today. Uh, although Pakistan is not a perfect safe haven, five crossed into Pakistan with legal visas and um, they were at great risk. One had already been um, jailed and badly beaten by the Taliban. So there are many, many more who believe that they are at such high risk, they, they don't want to stay. And it's a conundrum, isn't it? Because you don't want to drain the best brains away from serving the country. But on the other hand, particularly young women are at very, very high risk. And so... You know, where can they go? Uh, we've, we've been looking everywhere. Uh, and I think the Australian government is possibly in the future going to begin uh, opening up to more Afghans coming. And, and I hope everybody in Australia will pressure for that. Because, you know, what we see in Poland ought to be the new norm for how to engage with refugees. You know, there's not a single huge refugee camp in Poland. People are saying, oh, come to my home. They've thrown open their doors in city after city. And that's the way it ought to be when people are fleeing for their lives and trying to protect their children. Now, it's true that black and brown people trying to flee from Ukraine have not been so welcome or maybe not welcomed at all in Poland. So it's not perfect. But I think that this effort to uh, make sure that, for instance, there's no caged child on the border between Ukraine and Poland in the way that we see uh, in the United States southern border, to make sure that the tone, the, the, the paradigm that we would extol would be one of opening our hearts and our, our homes to people who are fleeing. So so I'm hoping that can happen for Afghan refugees. You're probably not aware in the United States that the Australian government has refused to allow Afghans into Australia who helped the Australian soldiers. They were, they were um, interpreters and they had other jobs. And at the same time, our government has opened everything for the 
Ukrainian refugees to come to Australia immediately. No one is criticising that that latter part, but are very critical of the stance on bringing Afghans who actually saved Australian lives to Australia. I, I agree with you, Janet. My hope is that the um, document that I read the other day, which would be, should a new government form the pre-budget proposition that was um, made, and it did allow for acceptance of, of more Afghan refugees. So I, I think we have to keep on pressing for every government to um, recognize the injustice. And, the, you know, is it racism of pre- giving such preference to people who, who look more like the majority populations in some countries or the wealthier, more privileged populations? But, uh, you know, the, the Afghan people are just as beautiful and just as needy and just as potentially uh, wonderful new um, residents in other countries, cities, and towns. Great to talk to you again, Kathy. Thank you, Jen. Thank you so much for calling. I've been speaking with anti-war activist Kathy Kelly. A system based on profits, inequality, and oppression cannot deliver a society that works for ordinary people. Capitalism has to go. During this global pandemic, millions of lives have been sacrificed by the let it rip strategy, all for the sake of the capitalist economy. The far right is on the offensive, in parliament and on the streets, and all the while, our planet continues to burn. Now, more than ever, we need revolution. We need socialism. This April, the Marxism 2022 conference will bring together revolutionaries and radicals from across the globe to address the pressing need to fight the right and rebuild the left. Talks, discussions, film screenings and interviews will cover the history of working class struggle and burning questions for socialists today. Get your ticket to the biggest left-wing conference in Australia at marxismconference.org. We have a world to win. Marxism 2022 is a 3CR supporter. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio. You got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers 
and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. As we move to the middle of the month, time to speak with the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network, Bob Phelps. Bob, beginning with the issue that we've spoken about in great length in recent times, the mitochondrial bill before the Federal Parliament, it was during the Senate at the end of last month. What was the result? Was there a debate? Well, it turned out not really to be a debate, unfortunately. It was the very last item of business on March the 30th at 10.30pm before they rose for the election. They won't meet again until uh, until the election's done with. So um, we managed to get uh, one of the senators to move some amendments, but um, those in favour of the bill didn't really debate them. Simon Birmingham, who's the manager of business for the government, just got up and debunked the amendments and uh, they went to a vote and we lost, which was unfortunate, but um, at least the need for change to the bill and some more protections I think is on the public record now. And um, we're also pleased that over 500 gene ethics supporters and others uh, did the two cyber actions to senators asking them to vote no to the the bill and telling them that it would make a difference to how they vote in the forthcoming election. So um, we've now built a list of uh, senators and House of Reps members and uh, after the election's over and done and dusted and we see who's in power, we'll be uh, moving to form a group within the parliament to start a, a major discussion about human germline gene manipulation, which can be inherited by future generations. Because really the the genetic makeup of human beings is being industrialised by researchers and by the IVF industry. And um, I think we just need to have a a much more thorough discussion. Uh, Most countries around the world don't allow germline gene manipulation. The exception is the UK. And um, this discussion needs to be had before we really embark on what is a whole new future for human beings. Uh, I, I think that's not overstating it. Meanwhile, um, it was announced today that uh, Canberra is putting $15 million into the research into uh, mitochondria. And, um, of course, the media are making uh, dramatic claims for how great it's going to be. But this, uh, these experiments will be rather stretched out. Uh, we've seen that the UK has already been working on them for the last um, six years haven't got any results yet and um, in our view we should have waited until those experiments were concluded and there was some evidence that uh, tinkering with human mitochondria which are the powerhouses of ourselves could be done safely and that it would achieve its objective of preventing mitochondrial disease which is what its, its supporters were claiming. We think instead that it may actually produce more children with mitochondrial disease rather than fewer uh, because one of the adverse events alluded to in the legislation uh, is exactly that and it provides no um, compensation or support 
for any children who are born with mitochondrial disease. We think that the the mito mothers, the women who might be induced by the IVF industry to go into this highly experimental and risky procedure, uh, would be better off just, just using conventional IVF or adopting children or maybe even deciding not to have children uh, rather than uh, venturing into this vanguard, this uh, radical new experimentation that's um, opening the door to potentially to much more uh, general interference with the human genome uh, that can be passed to future generations. You know, people say that they oppose it, including most of the leading scientists, that in fact a lot of them are just very quietly going along, pushing in that direction. What has been or what is the debate in other countries who haven't gone the same way as Australia's going? Well, take for instance, um, in 2018, a Chinese scientist um, announced at the International Summit on Human Genome Editing that he had in fact created twins who had had their genomes edited by him and as a result he uh, ended up in jail and has interestingly just been released. So clearly the Chinese government um, were pretty unhappy about it and he also uh, was stripped of his uh, scientific credentials and was heavily fined. But um, there's now talk that he may be in some way reinstated. So uh, the editing of the human genome is has happened. <laughs> Others are keen to do it. The interesting thing about that particular case is that, uh, of course, he wasn't acting alone. He had uh, particularly U.S. collaborators and um, others. We don't know how long the list of collaborators was, really. But um, they didn't suffer any consequences and uh, there are plenty of people who would like to uh, be entering into the editing of the human genome that could be inherited by future generations. And, and at the moment there's a, uh, an informal global consensus that that not be allowed and most countries, including incidentally Australia until the 30th of March, very expressly banned such intervention in the human genome uh, that could be passed on to our children and grandchildren. But the opening of this door through the passage of the mitochondrial law reform bill does open the door uh, to future gene editing, which of course can have a number of consequences, including, unfortunately, the enhancement of human beings and maybe even uh, eugenic selection, which has got now two centuries of a very checkered history, including, of course, the uh, the Nazis' policies, which were implemented during the before and during the Second World War. But we need to recall that, uh, in fact, eugenics was extensively practiced in the USA, in Europe, uh, and in Australia and New Zealand last century, and. Um, it was a very popular movement, and I think that uh, we need to just bear that history in mind when we start opening doors to allowing tinkering uh, with um, human genes because uh, 
you know, women were sterilised because they were thought to be feeble-minded, many of them, and um, of course other races were experimented on. People with uh, with coloured skin were selected to, to have experiments run on them as well for eugenic purposes. And um, I think uh, given the political climate in many countries around the world, for instance, uh, Marine Le Pen's running uh, with other right-wing racists in the French election over the weekend uh, really should warn us that uh, the debate about what kind of humans are suitable to inhabit the world is far from over and many government policies and politicians are now pushing uh, very hard in the direction of using whatever tools are available to them to uh, advance white supremacist views and policies and actions and uh, it's very a very worrying trend indeed. Interestingly, foreign correspondent uh, on the ABC TV last week was about the French election and some of the people pushing the right-wing agenda uh, in particular were online influencers including uh, a young woman with many tens of thousands of followers uh, who was pushing the racist card as the way forward for France. Uh, these are very worrying trends indeed. And should we also, Bob, be worried about the new breeding techniques for food production? Well, I think we should, yes, um, because there really is no evidence of their safety or efficacy at this stage, and yet the Office of Gene Technology Regulator the year before last deregulated these new breeding techniques, particularly for plants, but also for animals and microorganisms. And um, now we've got the Food Stands Australia New Zealand discussing whether the novel foods that are produced from those plants, animals and microorganisms uh, should be self-regulated by the food industry, whether or not they should be allowed to evaluate whether they're really doing anything that might harm public health or safety. And uh, if they conclude that uh, their experiments and their production systems are going to be safe, then uh, they're really the proposal that Food Standards is putting forward would be exonerated from uh, having to be independently assessed by the regulator themselves. So this deregulatory agenda is very alive and well in the federal government. In fact, um, Morrison and, uh, and company had transferred the unit, the deregulation unit as it's called, into the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet where it's had a huge amount of influence on the way forward, uh, including in the food regulation area. And um, what we see is that the industry will be allowed to judge whether or not it's new genetically engineered and other foods like synthetic foods, for instance, have got a history of safe use in the food supply, whether or not they're likely to be safe and uh, can self-regulate. If they decide that really this is quite new and uh, we, uh, we should at least get the regular, regulator to cast their eyes over it, then it will be uh, regulated under the novel food standards, not under the GM food standards and uh, that will be light-touch regulation as well. So uh, we're venturing into a much different situation in relation to the emerging alternatives to meat, for instance, 
many of which will be produced using synthetic biology and other um, chemical synthesis processes uh, to produce food that is really, I think, in Michael Pollan's words, a food-like substance rather than actually being food with unknown health consequences uh, of limited nutritional value. I mean, junk foods are already of limited nutritional value, but I think that uh, these synthetic foods, which are now uh, being produced and incidentally are being incorporated into uh, foods such as infant formulas, whether they will actually do what they say they'll do and whether they'll, uh, in the long term, provide the nutritional needs of the community at large. So uh, very big question marks there, and uh, we hope when this comes out for further public discussion in the next month or two that uh, there will be a, a very robust public debate about whether or not we should allow uh, food to be deregulated in this way. Well, this applies to New Zealand as well. What's the debate like there? Well, it's certainly different but uh, because they don't have any genetically manipulated crop plants or organisms being grown in New Zealand um, and they regulate in a slightly different way under the hazardous materials legislation. But really, when push comes to shove, because uh, food is under the free trade agreement between Australia and New Zealand is allowed to be transferred uh, liberally across the Tasman without any uh, real restraints, whatever regulations or deregulations are introduced in Australia will also uh, be introduced in New Zealand. And uh, unfortunately, their regulator is pretty much in the same mould as the regulators here. And of course, when decisions are taken, they of course only have one vote, whereas Australia has got all its states and territories with a vote on the future of food, as well as the federal government, which has the lead role so um, it's the federal government that rules the roost and uh, the deregulation is the order of the day and uh, of the century. You know, let industry have its head and do what it likes, whether it's human genetic engineering and the IVF industry or whether it's the fake food industry, which is uh, emerging now. Well, the election has been called. We've got the date now. You've got... Yep. You've um, got a questionnaire for people. Can you explain what you hope to do with that? Well, uh, we put out our questionnaire last week, so uh, in the expectation that the election would be announced, we thought we, we should move ahead of time if we could, and we did do that. So we put out 10 questions to all the political parties, and uh, they will have received them on Friday of last week. And uh, we've given them till the 29th of April to reply. We didn't at that point know when the election would be called, but um, it turns out that our best guess in order to get them to return their questionnaire and still give us time to do a an election scorecard uh, to tell people the policies and the potential actions of the different political parties uh, being the 29th of April, has worked out quite well. So that's three weeks before the election. And with a bit of luck, we'll be able to get our scorecard together. The parties, of course, are always very reluctant to respond to election questionnaires because they know darn well that uh, they can end up 
in a pretty um, negative light if they give the wrong answers. Well, the interesting thing there is that now the rules concerning the scorecards, of course, are very particular about not recommending particular uh, parties. The um, Australian not-for-profits regulator, the ACNC, for instance, has these rules which uh, pretty much constrain what you can say. So you can give the information uh, based on the results, but you certainly can't venture into the area of making any recommendations about who anybody should uh, vote for. And I suppose that's quite appropriate. People can judge for themselves on the basis of the answers and the uh, check boxes that are presented as a scorecard can make their own decisions about how they might vote. But um, I think on the basis of the track record of the parties um, that, uh, you know, people will will decide and um, who knows how the election will turn out. But we will still continue to work on policy, uh, trying to, through our questionnaire, also trying to educate the parties and the public about what we think are the upcoming issues, like the one we already talked about, the, uh, the food issues and also the uh, human gene manipulation. So those questions are heavily in our questionnaire. And uh, after the election, we'll hope that uh, we can work with the parties to acquire good policies on those issues and also to implement them, uh, whoever is in government. Have you tried questionnaires like this before with elections? Yes, we have. Um, we've done most of the federal elections over the last uh, 25 years, in fact, and uh, also the state elections when there was a lot of argument about whether or not genetically manipulated crop plants should be planted in the various states and territories around the country. Uh, we engaged in questioning uh, the, regula- uh, the, the state governments as well and, and the candidates there. And that was useful, I think. Tasmania, of course, remains um, free of any genetically manipulated crop plants, as does the ACT. But uh, most of the others have given in at this stage, although it's interesting that uh, the big bonanza that was going to be uh, genetic manipulation out on the farm uh, hasn't materialised at all at this stage. Uh, There are basically two crop plants, um, genetically manipulated cotton that will be resistant to being sprayed with various herbicides, particularly Roundup, the glyphosate product, and also Bayer's product because it's um, come on the scene, it's glufosinate product, and a few others are approved. So cotton, uh, though it's a very small industry, um, covering a rather small area in Queensland, New South Wales, and increasingly in northern Australia is very valuable and uh, most of the cotton crop is uh, genetically manipulated with the herbicide tolerance. And then the other main crop is canola and uh, that's in the scheme of things um, a pretty minor crop. So overall something of the order of uh, a half of 1% of Australian croplands are covered with uh, either of those two genetically manipulated crops. So while it's been adopted, its intrusion into the overall cropping systems is small 
And what we see is that the fastest growing area of, um, of agriculture now is organic and the regenerative farming systems. As conventional farmers get squeezed by the fact that uh, the inputs to their um, farm production have gone astronomically expensive over the last few years, many of them are moving in the direction of reducing chemical and fuel inputs, fertilizers and so on, and um, looking for new systems, particularly systems that are more in keeping with the needs of uh, the environment, particularly soil, in order to continue producing. Many, of course, have gone out of production because Australia has still got very poor soils and limited water, and uh, as a result, farming really has been squeezed dramatically. So we need a big change there as well, and the genetic manipulation of crop plants and animals is not a direction in which I think agriculture in Australia is headed. I'd imagine over the recent years of questionnaires that some issues keep coming up and then you've got new ones coming along. Well, yes, that's right. We've been um, asking governments for the last 20 years to join the Biosafety Protocol, which is a, um, a treaty under the Convention on Biological Diversity. And um, all Australian governments have refused to do that, so we're asking them again to subscribe to the Biosafety Protocol, which has as its main purpose the promotion of systems for the safe international transport, handling and use of uh, modified organisms. The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, of course, in the federal government has trade as its main imperative and it's always argued that um, the biosafety protocol gives other countries the opportunity to raise non-tariff barriers to free trade. So the free trade agenda trumps biosafety every time as far as the Australian government is concerned. So we're pushing on with trying to get that protocol into place and to bring um, Australia into line with uh, over 170 other countries that belong to and care about the biosafety. Uh, so um, I think we should join. I think we should go wholeheartedly into it. And that's one of the questions that's in our questionnaire this time. Should the Labor Party get in, is that something you'd be looking forward to? We look forward to a good government next time, uh, whoever it is, let's say. Uh, we want them to be responsive to public interest and public sentiment, particularly around more environmentally friendly systems for producing the food and fibre that have major impacts on the Australian environment. So our questions go to more research and development funding for things like regenerative agriculture and organic systems, uh, which past governments have been very reluctant to do. Uh, we need to update the rules about what uh, can happen out on the land so that our environments are protected. And, uh, of course, those food issues are in there as well. The genetic engineering of human beings, yes, that's on our questionnaire. Also, um, issues around the security of laboratories. The Australian government was very, very quick, you may recall, in calling for the laboratory in Wuhan in China 
to be investigated and the World Health Organization went along with that position. But um, our question uh, does a different take on that. We think there should be a global review of all high security laboratories and there are around 60 of them in 23 countries and just find out what's going on in those labs including the ones in Australia because uh, they admit that um, those high security labs contain some of the most virulent and dangerous uh, pathogens known to science and uh, there have been security failures even, even here in Australia. So we think all of the high security labs should be looked at and particularly uh, in relation to their compliance with the Biological Weapons Convention because we know perfectly well that some of them are actually trying to invent weapons that can be used to uh, disrupt environments and uh, kill human beings as part of war making. So I think the uh, Russian war on Ukraine and the potential for nuclear war and the potential for biological weapons to be created and used as well as uh, other toxins and dangerous chemical substances in um, international conflicts is alive and well and real and that's why we've put a question on uh, high security labs into our questionnaire as well. We think they should all be looked at, not just the one in Wuhan, to find out whether the the research methods that are being used in those laboratories are also safe and secure. Uh, there's a particular strand of research called gain of function in which dangerous pathogens are made uh, more virulent and more transmissible, not only between uh, organisms of the same species, like bats for instance, but also into other species like human beings. These gain-of-function research methods are highly dangerous, may have been the cause of COVID-19 uh, and other um, endemics and pandemics, and uh, the public has a right to know what's going on in those labor laboratory environments and making damn sure, that, firstly, that the methods being used are safe and secure and are producing uh, useful results because a lot of scientists say that it's a waste of time and a very dangerous enterprise. And secondly, whether um, they can be used safely and with public oversight and knowledge, because most of it is secret at the moment, even what's going on in Australia. And uh, the public has a right to know what's being done in our name. We don't want more COVID-19 pandemics. And uh, we want to question whether the research that's being done may have been the cause. Just briefly and finally, Bob, it's not in your remit, but the focus has to be also on climate change. Well, yes, of course, and um, climate change is real. Uh, climate change is happening, and uh, we're particularly pleased that um, young people are engaged in that. But, of course, genetic manipulation, the engineering of... Uh, crop plants, animals and even human beings to withstand the impacts of climate change is really a load of rubbish. I mean, uh, we need to be doing something about the causes of climate change, not trying to fix up the consequences. For instance, uh, we saw that there's a proposal in Western Australia 
uh, over the weekend. In fact, supposedly new research, but research that was first proposed in the 1980s to um, change bacteria so they can create a substance which will help plants to survive frost damage, which is a major problem in agriculture everywhere. But of course, these bacteria have a downside as well because they're very, very critical to regulation of the climate, particularly the formation of ice and raindrops and clouds. The debate was had in the 1980s, and that research in Western Australia should be defunded and stopped right now. So there are many, many facets to this, but uh, commodifying and industrialising uh, living systems, including human beings, is just not on if we hope to deal sensibly and in, in a proactive and meaningful way about climate change and all the other problems that uh, human beings are creating as part of the sixth extinction where we're wiping out species around the world and these are species that we need for our survival and of course uh, climate change is one of the uh, critical processes on this planet that are driving species to extinction. We're not helping, we're harming the situation and uh, we need to stop it now. Thanks for today, Bob, and I'll talk to you in a month's time. Beautiful. Thank you very much. And that was Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. Do look them up, geneethics.org.au, and they have a Facebook page as well. Hi, Hi. we're from Braver College, and you're listening to Free CR Community Radio on 8.55am. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all.
continuing on the series of interviews looking at the recent history of countries in Latin America, together with the present and what's likely to be ahead in the near future. Today it's Colombia and I spoke once again with PhD student and activist Sasha Gillis-Lakakis. And Colombia holds a strategically important position in the region. It shares borders with Panama, Venezuela, Ecuador, Peru and Brazil and has access to the Atlantic Ocean via the Caribbean Sea and to the Pacific. The Century Post position provided by this enclave located in the heart of the Americas is basic in the strategic plans for the region by United States interests. Sasha, I'm sure you have a starting date for this interview, but can I first point to the fact that Colombia of a century or so ago was a much larger country? That's absolutely right, Jams. That's a really important point. So we'll go back because up until about 1900, 1901, Colombia actually encompassed, well, in fact, even earlier than that, Colombia was a much larger country. I mean, originally, if we want to go back to the 1800s, of course, Simon Bolivar had established the country um, that was called Gran Colombia, Great Colombia, which encompassed what, what is today modern-day Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, and Panama. Um, and that was really, you know, one of the main sort of revolutionary independence-minded dreams of the Latin American freedom fighters throughout that period. Unfortunately, it didn't end up uh, lasting due to both internal and external pressures. But, uh, of course, Colombia has also been really, really strategic from the viewpoint of the United States. And Colombia has always been seen as this sort of linchpin, um, chiefly because of its geography, because, of course, Colombia is located in northern South America, which positions it really, really nicely between Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. So it's a very, very strategically significant country. And, you know, there's, it's a very rich country as well, or it's a potentially rich country. Um, unfortunately, a lot of that wealth, which is derived from precious metals and oil and in terms of the illicit economy, drugs, has not stayed in the country at all. Um, in fact, most of it has gone to the United States or it's been kept by the Colombian oligarchy. And we saw, we saw this manifest in, as I said, 1900, 1901, when Colombia still actually controlled what is today Panama. Um, historically, Panama is actually Colombian territory. But the United States actually financed a, a new sort of emerging Panamanian elite to basically secede from Colombia. And there was quite a violent, a brief conflict, but a violent conflict that saw Panama declare its independence from Colombia with US backing. And that, of course, was because Washington wanted control of the Panama Canal, which Colombia had previously had ownership of. Um, and it hadn't ceded those rights to the United States. Of course, Panama did. So, yeah, just that's a very brief sort of overview of the way, you know, to demonstrate the ways in which Colombia has always been very significant. And unfortunately, you know, it's, it's had a lot of very interesting experiments, political and economic experiments take place in its territory, but none of them have really been allowed to sort of um, mature and develop without external pressures and the pressures of the, of the local elite getting in the way. I'll go back now to, to what really is, I think, the start of, of modern Colombia's history, which is, of course, the 1940s and specifically the period 1947 to 1949. 
because this was the first time that really a, a genuine and authentic leftist movement had a chance of assuming power in Colombia, state power. So we're not talking about just social movements um, or localised indigenous or Afro-Colombian groups, which are, of course, just as important. But we're talking about a, a left-wing movement actually claiming state power in Colombia and taking the presidency. And this movement was led by a man called Elisier Gaitan. Now, throughout the 1930s and the 1940s, he was a wildly popular figure. Uh, he originally belonged to the Liberal Party of Colombia. Like many Latin American countries, Colombia's political scene had been divided into the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. So, you know, you had the Conservatives, which were, which tended to be more um, right-wing in their economic and their social policy, and the Liberals, which, generally speaking, were more progressive, but were still very, very, very moderate by any stretch of the imagination. So no radical alternatives until Gaetan comes along. And he ends up leading the Liberal Party in the 1949 elections. And we have this whole period from the two years, 47 to 49, where there's this groundswell of popular support for this man. And he's pledging to redistribute land and wealth to hold the oligarchy accountable really for the first time in Colombia's history. Even during the independence wars, the oligarchy was sort of given free reign. What was his background, Sasha? So he, he actually came from not a wealthy family, but we would call this family middle class. And as I said, he was a politician within the Liberal Party. So, you know, he's not someone that we maybe would have expected to take this sort of stance, but he, he had travelled, he was a very well-travelled, a very well-read individual, uh, and he'd actually been able to go around and actually see the way that everyday Colombians lived around the country. He, he'd travelled to the Caribbean coast, to the Amazon, to the Pacific coast, all of which have their own issues and their own challenges. And he was very acutely aware that the only way to properly face them was to take these more radical measures. Um, and this is particularly around the issue of land reform and wealth redistribution, because Colombia, even by Latin American standards, had a very, very concentrated, you know, a very high concentration of wealth uh, within a very, very small percentage of the population. And the same can be said for land as well. In fact, some people estimate, look, there's, there's no concrete statistics from the 1930s and the 1940s on this sort of um, issue of land control and land control concentration. Some of the most reputable figures do suggest that about 10% of Colombia's population owned or controlled or had economic interests in 85 to 90% of Colombia's land. So that, that's, like a, that's a really obscene amount of land being controlled and exploited by a very small number of people in Colombia. Did World War II touch Colombia? So World War II, interestingly, not, not really. So Colombia did end up committing to the Allied cause. Um, a num most Latin American countries did, actually, uh, chiefly because the United States did. So Colombia did end up sending a very, very small number of soldiers um, over to to Europe. Um, I think they, were, they actually went with the Brazilian soldiers to Italy. That's where they, they saw the only place that they saw action. And even then, as I said, it, it, was an incre like it was a negligible number of soldiers and a negligible number of resources. So Colombia wasn't actually impacted, at least in a military or an economic sense, by the war. If anything, they actually got a, a bit of a boost from the war because there was a demand for their raw materials, chiefly the minerals, and of course sugar, which is which grows very well on the Caribbean coast in Colombia. 
So, yeah, of course, the, the main issue that Colombia now found itself in was that you had, you know, the emerging Cold War after the end of, the, of World War II between the capitalist West and the communist East. And Colombia and Latin America more generally was placed under renewed scrutiny from the United States and from their policy planners and their security, you know, the security state in the US and the CIA, which had just been formed. And, of course... You know, for Guy Khan to start suggesting that Colombia needs to reform its land control policies and its wealth distribution. And, of course, he was also talking about taking an independent and what we call economic nationalist development path. So actually prioritizing Colombia's economy through protectionism, through, through defending Colombian industry and Colombian products uh, at the expense of foreign companies and at the expense of foreign intrusion into Colombia's economy, which, of course, the United States was not going to have any bar of. And so what ends up happening in 1949, just before the election, and it's widely, it's widely known that Gaetan would have won in a landslide, he's assassinated. He's assassinated. And to this day, we don't actually know for certain who ordered the assassination, but we can guess pretty well that it was either the Colombian elite so the local elite in Colombia that was having their interests threatened, or potentially the United States, um, the US government. Oh, and of course, the third option is that it was cooperation between the two, the Colombian elite and the US government that saw Gaetan assassinated. And this, of course, sparks a massive series, you know, a massive amount of social unrest aimed at the Colombian elite and at the two main political parties, even the Liberal Party, which Gaetan belonged to. And this this period, which doesn't end until the nineteen the late nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties, is really a sort of um, period of, of significant trouble in Colombia, uh, where you have the main political parties in the country organising right wing paramilitary groups to sort of fend off these pro Gaitan elements. And, you know, this is when we really start to see the emergence of conflict in the rural areas of Colombia between peasant groups. Um, there's no guerrilla movements yet. That comes a little bit later. But this is really the beginning of the chronic instability that Colombia really still hasn't overcome. In fact, it hasn't overcome it at all yet. But this is what happens. And then in the mid-1950s, what we have is an accord is reached between the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party, and they essentially agree to alternate power between each other. So this, this also happened in neighbouring Venezuela and in a number of other Latin American countries when they were faced with social unrest and threats from more radical groups. They essentially put their differences aside, which, to be honest, were limited to begin with, and they agree, yeah, to alternate power so that the elite is constantly in control of Colombia's political and economic and social decision-making. So what you have is this sort of, really this sort of unbreakable political deadlock where no one's really able to get in. There's no oxygen for any sort of alternative movement or political party because the two dominant forces which control pretty much most state institutions in Colombia and, of course, have the backing of the US and foreign companies you know, they've, they've essentially cornered the market, if you want to use that terminology, on Colombia's uh, electoral and political space. Of course, you know, most Colombians do see this for the, the blatant fraud that it is, and they continue, they continue to fight and they continue to mobilise. And in the mid-1960s, so around 1964, we have a really pivotal event take place. So a number of the right-wing militias that the Liberal and the Conservative parties were financing and supporting 
launch an attack on a northern Colombian community um, in the department of Cucuta, which is also well known today for being um, a hotbed of indigenous and Afro-Colombian and radical activism. But this, this right-wing group attacks and essentially massacres a communist community there. There, there was a communist, uh, pretty much a commune, if you want to call it that, had been established by a group of anti, anti-establishment individuals and movements to essentially govern themselves in this remote part of Colombia. Um, but the right-wing paramilitaries arrive in 1964 and they massacre this community. And what we have in retaliation is the creation and the consolidation of what becomes the first major Colombian guerrilla group, which is the FARC, so the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, so the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. So this, this killing becomes a rallying point for a number of leftist movements, communist movements, socialists, indigenous groups, and they agree to coalesce uh, around the leadership, chiefly of communists and the Communist Party in Colombia, and they create the FARC to essentially uh, wage a protracted war against the Colombian state. And look, it's very easy to see their reasoning behind this decision because, you know, they had tried to abscond to the, a remote part of Colombia and live independently of the Colombian state. And even in spite of that, they were persecuted, hunted down and killed. And they reasoned the only way that this is going to get any better or that we're going to be able to survive and not have to live under this incredibly unequal and violent system is by using violence ourselves to fight against the Colombian oligarchy and their foreign backers. And that's exactly what happens. Now, this initially actually catches the Colombian elite off guard. They weren't expecting such a quick and unified response. And that's why the FARC were also able to sort of entrench themselves in a lot of parts of the country. They became very popular, as I said, in the north, um, closer to the Caribbean coast as well, and in the Amazon as well, and in the Andes, because Colombia has part of the Andes in the south of the country. Um, Now, of course, these are all overwhelmingly poor communities. Um, They're not white communities. They're chiefly Afro-Colombian or indigenous, overwhelmingly rural, very few social services, um, even basic infrastructure is non-existent in parts of these countries. And the FARC is actually able to establish control in some of these areas in the 1960s and 1970s and going into the 1980s. And they do establish these basic social provisions for individuals and for communities. And that becomes a cornerstone of their support and of their recruitment process as well, because a lot of, you know, unemployed, disillusioned, marginalised individuals are able to get food and get a very a very basic wage, um, but it's a wage nonetheless by joining the FARC militias. Now, of course, this doesn't escape the notice of the United States. They begin investing heavily in militarising the Colombian state and in modernising Colombia's, mili- not only their military um, and their police force, but also these informal paramilitary groups that actually end up becoming, in many ways, sort of an extension of the Colombian state and of the, Colum- the Colombian state sort of terror apparatus. These are incredibly violent groups. In fact, most major studies recognise that while the left-wing groups, and chiefly the FARC, have been responsible for about 15 to 20% of the killings and of the, um, you know, the atrocities taken place during Colombia's civil war, the right-wing paramilitary groups and the military have been responsible for around 80, 85, 90%, depending on which figures you would like to trust. But it never dips below 80% in these, um, in these sort of 
estimate of, of the uh, apportioning blame for the violence uh, and all of the instability and the terrible, terrible consequences that the conflict has brought in Colombia. But, you know, and this, this has a really, this, this, we'll, and we'll get to this later, but it's the US's involvement and financing of Colombia's elite uh, has had really significant implications going into the modern day. Where were the FARC getting their weapons from? Yeah, so this again is not, there's no definitive answer to this. Um, there's been a lot of speculation. We do know for a fact that the FARC did get some weapons from Cuba following the Cuban Revolution. They, they were, of course, you know, sympathetic to each other's ideas, you know, socioeconomic ideals and, and the, the visions that they had for, for society. In fact, there was another group that emerged sort of, I guess, as a splinter from the FARC that was called M19, so Movimiento 19, uh, which was directly inspired by the Cuban guerrilla, guerrilla war of liberation in 1959. There was intimate sort of uh, contact between the two groups. And the Colombians also, uh, or the Colombian guerrillas, did also get weapons from the Soviet Union uh, to an extent. And also, um, interestingly enough, they were just able to pay a number of other Latin American states to get these weapons. So neighbouring Venezuela at the time was was actually quite happy to sell arms to the FARC. They also, of course, sold arms to the Colombian government. Um, so it's not like there was any sort of moral imperative. Uh, Mexico as well was a well-known source of arms in Latin America at the time. So it was actually relatively easy for the FARC to supply itself. And then, of course, internally, the FARC learned very quickly to, to maximise use of these arms and these weapons uh, and, and learned very quickly how to repair them well and ensure that they lasted very long. So, you know, they became a very economical movement. Um, they didn't waste a lot and they, they were quite, you know, acutely aware of the fact that that was going to be important when they were facing the Colombian government and the Colombian military and all those associated terrorist groups that are, that are, that are linked to Colombia's state um, because they, of course had so much more money coming in from the United States and, of course, U.S. military technology, which has, you know, incredibly destructive capacities. And now what, what I was about to say before, and this actually links quite well with this discussion on, on financing the, you know, the actual armed conflict aspect of Colombia's recent history, is that the U.S. and the CIA particularly uh, quickly found that they could best finance the Colombian government through the drug trade. Now, this is something that the US government doesn't like to talk about, and this is something that uh, a lot of analyses and discussions on Colombia's insurgency don't like to mention. But there is now evidence um, beyond a shadow of a doubt that the CIA and the US government was involved in drug production and drug trafficking in Colombia. In fact, they actually cultivated the groups that would later, um, you know, that would later become the Medellin cartel, the Cali cartel, and of course, those groups, the coalesced around Pablo Escobar as well. Now, these were chiefly, originally, they were rural landlords um, that the CIA contacted and, and that uh, established links with right-wing paramilitary groups to sort of begin the trade. And, you know, the landlords, you know, they had their vast tracts of land, you know, away from the eyes of the state, not that the state cared anyway, because they were in cahoots with the US government. But it proved to be a really convenient way for the CIA to accumulate vast amounts of money and arm um, their side of the Colombian conflict quite easily. 
uh, in spite of the fact that obviously, you know, financing the drug trade in hindsight, now seeing what it's done to Colombia and what it's done to most countries around the world, um, it's an unconscionable thing to do, really. But of course, that the CIA and the US government has a long history of doing unconscionable things. But, you know, we do have to recognise that the root of, the, of drug trafficking, not that it didn't exist before um, the insurgency, but it really, really exploded after the CIA decided to involve itself in the trade and actually give support to these distinct cartel groups that are now dominant in Colombia, that now control most institutions in Colombia, that control political parties in Colombia. So, you know, this, this, this is a really pivotal sort of point in the history of the region. And I guess if we want to talk about the rest of the, of, um, the world, you know, I mean, Colombia now is a, is a massive source uh, of a number of different drugs and particularly narcotics, uh, plant-based narcotics. So that's, that's how the war or the conflict developed in Colombia. And, you know, it, it becomes quite clear by the nineties that the FARC is not going to be able to defeat the military. They're just too powerful. They have too much institutional support and foreign support. But by the same token, the military is unsuccessful in its attempts to eradicate the FARC and even to remove them from their bastions in the remote parts of the country. And that takes us up to the turn of the century. Can I ask you first, uh, Sasha, you had the FARC, then you had M19... And then the ELN, how did the three groups operate differently? Yeah, so the ELN, that's, yeah, that is, you're absolutely right. That's the other major guerrilla group in Colombia. So the Ejército de Liberación Nacional, the National Liberation Army, which it called itself. Now, look, there was, there was a lot of collaboration between the three groups. In fact, most of them ended up, at least the ELN and M19 were formed by members of the FARC that often for ideological differences um, decided to create their own separate guerrilla group. They also tend to be quite localised in terms of geography in Colombia. So the FARC was easily the most widespread and had the, the largest membership. But the M19 and the ELN were more active in the northern parts of the country and closer to the border with Venezuela, um, which again is a very poor part of the country, a very underdeveloped part of the country. But that just happened to be where they were, where they were particularly active. They didn't have the same reach as the FARC. Um, they weren't, um, you know, they didn't have cells all the way down in the Amazon for most of the conflict. But they also, you know, this became a really big discussion when the Colombian peace accords, and, you know, of course we'll get to that, uh, but when the Colombian peace accords were being discussed, you know, across 2014 to 2016, um, and then they were finally signed, of course, in 2016, um, because the FARC, of course, agreed to demobilise. That was a really sort of pivotal outcome of those, of those discussions and negotiations. And the M19 as well decided to lay down its arms for the most part, but the ELN didn't. The ELN to this day, is still operating as a guerrilla group in Colombia because they, and look, I think quite rightly in this case, argued that the Colombian state was not going to adhere to the agreements outlined in the peace accord uh, and that they would betray the peace accord and continue to persecute the leftist movements and leftist individuals more broadly in Colombian society. Uh, and look, that is exactly what happened. But it is, you know, it's unfortunate that the ELN, which is a comparatively smaller group with less power and less reach across the country, 
was the only one that actually saw this coming or that at least, you know, made the decision to keep, to keep on fighting, you know, in recognition of that fact. So I might, I might take us back now to the 2000s because that's uh, also, uh, that's another pivotal moment because we have the arrival to power of a very, very important man in Colombia, Alvaro Uribe. Now he is essentially the, um, the great eminence of Colombian politics. He is uh, an incredibly wealthy individual um, from the ultra-conservative province of Antioquia. He's a, he's a terrible, terrible man. He's an arch-conservative when it comes to social issues and ult- the ultimate neoliberal when it comes to economic policy. And really, he is the face of Colombia's elite and the face of the Colombian right wing. And he was elected in the early 2000s, 2005 or 2006, if my memory serves me correctly. And he pledged to significantly intensify the war against these guerrilla groups, but he also expanded it to incorporate a war against social movements. So these are groups that aren't even violent, um, but they range from environmental activists to indigenous communities and Afro-Colombian groups, which are particularly active on Colombia's Pacific coast. That tended to be where a lot of the slave populations were bought and where most of the slave populations ended up settling after slavery was abolished in the Spanish-American colonies, uh, or in the recently, recently independent colonies, I should say, following the independence wars. But he, he ends up, yeah, essentially expanding this war to be an all-out, an all-out attack against the left in Colombia. Not that these groups weren't also persecuted beforehand, but he specifically targets them in policy and actually gives the military and paramilitary groups extra funding to target these groups and to kill social leaders and particularly important activists that might be seen as a sort of rallying point for radical groups. And you've been listening to part one of the recent history of Colombia in South America with PhD student and activist Sasha Gillis-Lakakis. And we'll hear part two on the program next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.